National media continues to promote negative headlines intentionally designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. We want you to hear from the source rather than a misleading soundbite. To keep this conversation going, support us on the lawmatters1030.org website. It's time we listened to and said thank you to those who spend their lives protecting us. Now let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. I hope you have your world map out. We have Hal Comfort on the phone, and he's going to take us for a trip around the world, security-wise. Good morning, Hal. Morning, Sherry. There's a there's a lot going on in the world. I know. Where should we start? <laughs> Let's start right here. Let's start right here in America. Um, I'm curious, and I had a few people ask this, and this is why I'm going to ask you. What Trump did with these documents, how dangerous is that for our security, or do we even know? Well, that's what they're assessing. You know, anytime there's been a, there's a breach of a, of a, or, or release of, uh, unauthorized release of classified material, uh, there has to be a whole counterintelligence investigation that takes place. Looking at the information, that was there looking at sources and methods, what could be gleaned from that in terms of uh, assessments, conclusions, indications that a foreign intelligence service, a foreign government could possibly use to figure out where where or how we're gathering information. Now in the classic sense, uh, there could be an information that they could, they you know, something something in there. And it could be just a little nugget of information, like one sentence in a report that a foreign government would look at, for example, Russia would look at and say, the only way they could have known that is if they had somebody in that meeting or somebody that was in that facility that had access to those systems or whatever it is. And with that knowledge, they can narrow down uh, who possibly could have, uh, have breached that information. And at some point, we could actually lose one of our agents, you know, somebody that we recruited per, perhaps in the Russian government or Russian military that was providing us some valuable information. That's the essence of counterintelligence. Uh, we've had that happen with us uh, for a lot of times, you know, Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen, they compromised information that they got a lot of uh, agents working for the CIA killed. They were arrested, killed by uh, by the Russian Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, that's also happened the other way around too. Is you know that's how we found that was one of the ways that we found Oliver James and Robert Hansen was that we knew that they had certain intelligence and we were able to narrow that down. So that's one thing. The one that's uh, probably uh, doesn't not quite spectacular in terms of how we perceive it is technical penetrations, you know, technical intelligence, whether it be from satellites or listening to communications or something like that. And when there is something that we've gathered from those means, if they can ever figure that out, uh, they could literally take countermeasures, which could shut down an entire array of ways that we can gather information. And that can have truly profound impact on our ability to understand what other other foreign militaries, other foreign countries are doing in this regard. Knowledge is not just power. Knowledge is also security. The yes. more we know, the better decisions we make. So that's what they're doing right now, is they're looking at all that information, where he was storing it, who could have had access to it, who it could have been shared with. Of course, the big fear 
and there probably is a good deal of unknown is who could have got into those spaces. And since, you know, they were at least reportedly, they were stored, you know, behind a stage of a, of a banquet room that were, or a large uh, area that was a venue that was being used constantly being stored in other areas where there was open access, you know, they, they're probably going to have to go with some sort of conclusion that maybe there was a penetration. Now there have been reports of, uh, foreign agents targeting Mar-a-Lago, China, for example. And uh, so that's big concern that 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 information has been compromised. And and some of that we may never actually fully know because they don't, they're not going to release that to the public because it's an internal counterintelligence stuff. That may, that may come up in the court proceedings, but it may come up in a uh, part of the court proceedings. that's not, not available for the public to actually uh, know about. So what about um, congressmen, senators, judges on the Supreme Court taking money and in, in lavish gifts from people? Doesn't that compromise their place in, well, in our secure system? I, I know it's shocking to think of an elected official taking money from somebody. I yeah, just, who, who, stunning. I mean, <laughs> when does that ever happen? But <laughs> what a Supreme Court judge? Good grief. Well, you know that's that's I, that's an interesting thing. I've been watching that too, and uh, there's a there's a famous Roman saying, you know, who watches the watchers, right? And when, when I'm when I look at this stuff with the Supreme Court, it, it is it is a, and, and it kind of goes back to what we we're just talking about with uh, with President Trump. You know, in our system, there are certain you know it kind of works up the chain of command, if you will, or works up the. Uh, levels of government, and then you get to the very top, and you got, you know, the President of the United States, you know, senior cabinet members, um, uh, you know, elected officials in Congress, and that kind of is, and of course, uh, Supreme Court justices, the highest court justices in the land, and the system does kind of rely on their integrity, um, you know, their, their uh, you know, ethics, their, morals, their ethics, ethics, <laughs> morals, whatever you want to say. Well, basically, I was going to say conduct that they they don't do stupid stuff, and uh, um, and so when that's compromised, that that's a big issue, and I, I think they're looking at that. I think you know that Justice Justice Roberts has got to look at this, and and uh, you know they are separate. Uh, you know, they're separate part of government. You know, they're not on the executive branch; it's the judiciary branch, so they're a separate branch of government, co-equal. With the other two branches, and it sounds to me like there's, or at least what it looks like to me is they're they're having to to do a much more extensive review of how they do things that we do in the intelligence world and law enforcement and other spheres, you know, more of the enforcement side, which is this extensive ongoing background investigation process, uh, looking at people's you know lives, what they're doing, all sorts of stuff to make sure that they're not being compromised. And I think some of this, it sounds to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm from the outside, I'm obviously not part of any investigative effort or anything like that, but at least from the outside, it looks like they're going to look at the updated, you know, how they do these investigations and stuff to make sure that the justices themselves are not compromising uh, information or skewing their opinion. I think also to allow the... Uh, the court to better decide when certain justices need to recuse themselves from, from certain cases. Uh, I'm, 
frankly, I'm like everyone else. I'm a little bit shocked with with how much influence was being purchased. Purchased would be a term. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you take people on, you know, the, 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 when you when you t- send somebody on a private jet for you know, for, for a vacation that probably has a monetary value of, you know, quite a bit. You know, yeah, I was gonna say. I, I looked it up. Know, I looked up maybe some six of the... figures, high eight figures, something like that. But exactly. If that's not if that's not influence buying, I'm not quite sure what is. But uh, in paying uh, school is... tuition over a hundred thousand oh dollars for. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, and gosh, and I'm not going to declare about... it on my taxes. Hello. <laughs> you know, if you go to the that's Oscars, what... they give you a swag bag. The <laughs> actors have to declare the value of that yeah. bag on their taxes. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I, know, I can't I know. even go oh, to lunch with a realtor being a, lo- a mortgage loan officer without splitting the check or we could get in trouble. I well, can't you know, buy a realtor I, I, lunch. <laughs> you know, here's an interesting thing. Um, in, the, in the, you know, I come from a, you know, military standpoint also as a, you know, I do a lot of contracting with the government. There are some very strict rules on how that works. And, uh, you know, one of the rules is, for example, if you're in uniform, and you're going out to say lunch with a contractor, you you cannot let them buy you anything. That's you know it's you don't they don't they can't buy you lunch they can't do anything. That's not a lot, you know. That's certainly not you know paying for someone's uh, you know lavish for vacation for their kids to go to a private school or a lavish vacation or something like that. That's like a lunch or even a cup of coffee. And uh, I remember one time I was meeting uh, up in. Uh, uh, you know, I'm in California. I was meeting in Sacramento with somebody uh, that worked for the state legislature. And we went out and uh, we were just talking and stuff. And I said, you know, I offered to buy the guy lunch. And he goes, I cannot do that. You know, he says uh, in the legislature, which was kind of interesting because actually the topic of conversation was, was we were actually talking about corruption with the another branch of the government, state government, but <laughs> <laughs> which was far, far excess of anything. No, like a mere lunch, but I was just like a, just out of habit. I was just like, hey, you want me to pick up lunch? It's like, got my card out. And he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, it so, just it just seems know. strange that you know people looking at this wouldn't think, well, you know, our security has been compromised by this Supreme Court judge, and probably not just one of them because you know, of all a, these lavish gifts and the cases they're yeah, working I, on. It's security, but I also think that the decisions themselves, um, you know, which which may have more of a monetary uh, impact on some of these, uh, indi- you know, these very high wealth individuals or companies or the corporations that they represent. I think that actually has more to do with it. And, you know, as long as it's there, you know, uh, there's going to be. Uh, as, you know, that's where our system works. That's why we have to watch so closely what public officials do. Uh, and I would say we're somewhat remiss in that. And I'd say that actually shows up in some of the body politic opinion that we have that shows up in elections <clears throat> is a deep, dare I, dare I say I'm having any great insight here, a deep distrust of government across the board. And that does show up in our, you know, in our voting. It's been a dominant theme in a, in a lot of the elections. And some of that is the making sure that not just uh, not just that that public integrity is being maintained uh, with these officials, 
but certainly the appearance and the impression amongst the uh, body politic is that there's a very high standard to which we hold them. And so when things like this come out, it's not necessarily the direct impact that it has in a particular court case or a particular government decision or something like that. It's the indirect effect, which has a cumulative effect in the minds of voters and stuff saying, look, we can't trust government. We can't trust government officials, whatever branch. And there is that throw the bums out sort of thing. And that is something. <laughs> <Like> that. <laughs> well, throw that the bums out. We've seen... <laughs> well, that's something we've seen. I mean, uh, dare I dare I discuss U.S. politics in the 1890s? Okay, but <laughs> but uh, but there is there are periods of U.S. history where where the White House would change rapidly. You know, who was in charge of Congress would change a lot, and a lot of that was based on public distrust, and a lot of that was based on the amount of change that was going on economically and politically around the world and technologically you know it's it's i mean it sounds like a complete complete stretch but um that right now you know i'm in los angeles all right and we have you know i'm gonna let you know a little secret we, we there's films that are produced in Los Angeles, okay, <laughs> and television. Argo. I've, I've seen it happen. It's shocking, but uh, you know that's a big thing out here. If you think the nationwide coverage of the uh, Screen Actors Guild uh, strike is big, you should see the coverage here in Los Angeles. I mean, it is a dominant thing because it's a huge industry. I used to live and there. Par- <laughs> <laughs> well, then you can. Dare I say I picture d- it? I, right. I, yeah. uh, <laughs> I identify. <laughs> identify. Well, what's interesting is they're talking about AI right. and uh, artificial intelligence. And that is that is actually part of the, the, the level of angst across the public is looking at artificial intelligence, what it can and can't do, you know, how well it can mimic uh, individuals. Uh, my son just recently graduated uh, from a from a university out here, and the the uh, speaker was talking about the, uh, the the you know chat CBT and talking about the ability. You know, the the concern they have in the industry, which is part of the, the strike, was talking about how they could you know use this stuff to write term papers and things like that. You know, the strike's concerned about writing scripts. They're concerned about you know, being replaced, images being replaced, and that's also a big concern. Uh, that you know, coming out of the 2016 election with all the, you know, the bots and social media that would accentuate accentuate certain themes and stuff. That's a huge theme. That's a huge issue that everybody talks about. Is that is this being regulated? Is this being controlled? Are we losing our identity? I think it's um, it's too soon to, to be really regulated. People are just realizing all the things that AI can do. And it, that it, part is kind of scary. And I don't, do they have an agency that says, okay, don't do this, don't do that? And is anybody really of. following it? Well, uh, two things. Uh, the FBI, which has pretty much jurisdiction on everything. Uh, yes, they have, uh, they have, uh, some folks following this, uh, they're looking at it very closely. They've been monitoring this for some time. Also, DHS has an outfit called CISA, 
which is uh, you know cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. And CISA does a lot of stuff where they look at cybersecurity, they look at AI, and a lot of these things across the board. And they've been putting out some uh, good, I would say, analytical type products. Uh, for, and I'm just talking about what's publicly released. I'm not talking about internally, whatever they do, but some publicly released documents which talk about this, which speak in broad terms about the potential threat that this poses, the risk that it poses. But it is a reality. It's here. And, and, and this is one of the things we have often found, which is somewhat difficult, is some of the things that get pushed like, we should just shut it down. You know, and that's, that's actually, I've heard that years back, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to date myself on this one, but there was the transition from to digital cell phone technology, okay, which seems like eons ago. But one of the problems in law enforcement is that all the intercept technology, this massive investment that for intercepting, you know, for listening to phone calls and stuff and investigations, what we call Title III, um, you know, wiretaps or things like that. That was all based on the old analog system uh, that we had. And so when they went to digital, all of a sudden this huge investment of technology that law enforcement was using across the board, federal, state, local, uh, for law enforcement investigations, all of a sudden had to be replaced to deal with this new digital thing. And so the FBI initially came out and said, we just have to stop digital cell phone technology. And it was kind of like, okay, Let's stop this tsunami, all right? This <laughs> put a while. <laughs> it's probably not going to work. And and so we actually set ourselves back for years because we didn't. We actually we actually held back. We're on, proactive uh, with on it. Yeah. So I think that's the same. Thing Look at what the NRA did in in 2015 and 2016. They used it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, you know, a lot of that. And 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 in fairness, all right, um, it, you know, one can discuss the ethics of it all day long. But I think back in 2015, I don't know if that was illegal per se. Some of those laws have been tightened up since. It was a huge vulnerability. Obviously, the Russians did it, yeah. and of course, we saw that the Russians uh, also were actively working with working on uh, penetrating the NRA. Uh, they, they did. They, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, they did. And, well, foreign intelligence services, that's that's what you do. I mean, that's kind of, you that's know. Part that's part of the deal. Trying, <laughs> it's part of the deal. You know, it's like, it's, it's what they'll say in the, you hear in the movies, it's, it's the job. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're going to be a spy, your job is to spy on people. That's kind of what you do. You well, know, the if, NRA got in uh, trouble because you know they're they're dealing with foreign entities, bringing them, paying for all this stuff. You know, these people to come here to purposely get involved with our politics. Mm-hmm. So they're on the well, verge of for, losing their five hundred one c three status. They they uh, they they got involved with a lot of stuff, and it's it's. It's gonna. It's it's well. It's hurting them. You know, there's a lot of litigation. They're countersuing on some things, but uh, you know, the problem was that certainly the Russians looked at the NRA and saw a lot of vulnerabilities that they could exploit. Uh, also, at the time, they uh, you know they were they were paying for. They'd set up this organization that was kind of a counter, which was sort of a mirror organization in Russia which dealt with gun rights, that to me is, 
it's just on the face of it such a humorous idea that in Russia you would have an organization that you know pushing for individual gun ownership rights. <laughs> that, that's so bizarre, <laughs> but but somehow somehow that, that they set this up and you know somebody somebody didn't you know. It was it, there was actually some belief in NRA. It's like, oh, there's a Russian organization believes the same things we do. Of course they did because it was kind of an intelligence point. You say we believe the same things you do, and uh, so they put that out there and they paid for all these trips of these Russian officials over to go over to Russia. And then when you go over to Russia, you know there's there's all sorts of things that they will do uh, to dangle stuff in front of them. You know sometimes you know, dalliances, if you will, uh, you know, where they will do what's called a honey trap. That's not uncommon, uh, that they will try and get them involved in some sort of romantic situation and then use that as compromise, compromise material that they can then, you know, you know, coerce them with later to get them to share more things. And what they saw was the NRA was incredibly connected in the halls of Congress and elsewhere. And they kind of saw a way to get in there with some vulnerabilities within the organization and take advantage of that and to, uh, to use that as an entree to get, you know, either indirect, get, get the NRA officials to, um, to get in there and hopefully be able to, you know, on their minds, be able to exploit them directly or indirectly to get them to open the doors so they can put their actually trained operatives and get them into offices and places that they otherwise never could have got into. You know, I have to say, um, uh, that was actually a fairly clever scheme by the Russians when you look at it in terms of how they did that. And it was, you know, very skewed. They just looked across the board, and uh, they said that's where they probably probably will have greater entry. You know, um, in, in historically in politics, it's been, you know, it's gone kind of back and forth. If you go back to the 60s, you, you wouldn't have found the Soviet Union, you know, really trying to exploit, say, uh, more conservative political organizations. They would have, ex- they were exploiting the more leftist uh, side. And so the Soviet Union uh, back then was exploiting the anti-Vietnam War movement as much as they possibly could. And they gained some uh, entrees through that. This is just a different era, different time. They're looking at the political landscape, and they saw where they could they could exploit that to gather intelligence, to get operations, you know, to conduct covert operations, you know, within the United States. I think we got to be aware of that. I think we also have to be aware too that uh, with the war in Ukraine, we're going to see more more operations with Russia. And, and 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 probably indirectly with other countries associated with Russia, more intelligence operations, where they're going to rely on what's called non-official cover uh, officers. These are uh, these are officers that are working covertly overseas in a in a uh, some sort of cover. Could be in business, could be non-governmental organizations, could be uh, anything. But they're not in an official diplomatic status. And the reason they're having to do that more is because across the world, the size of the embassy and consulate staffs of the Russians are being dramatically reduced. So they can't use their own personal personnel in official diplomatic status to do intelligence collection 
or run intelligence operations uh, in an you know in a, in an official cover because uh, there's just not as many there. And 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 by the way, countries go back and forth doing this every once in a while where they'll say these these diplomats are now persona non grata because they are they're they're obviously spies or they're conducting intelligence operations. And this goes back and forth with uh, with ourselves and the Russians. And we've done that with the Russians, uh, shutting down various different facilities, reducing their staffs, all sorts of stuff. So they have to look at non-official covers. And so there's a lot of Russian operators out there uh, in Europe and elsewhere around the world, in the United States, elsewhere in non-official covers. However, uh, when they, you know, they have to, in those non-official covers, they look for different organizations, different whether business or non-governmental, that they can affiliate with to maintain that. And I think if you look at the NRA, um, uh, I'm not saying that anybody working for the NRA was was uh, non-official cover Russian intelligence, but it was obviously they saw that as a uh, as a as a, as a possible as a vulnerable organization that they could exploit in a lot of different ways. And they did use operatives, obviously, that were in non-official cover. Uh, to do that, and of course, that became part of that big. I think was a, what, what, I forget which year that was that we had the big uh, trade of uh, all these uh, ostensibly, uh, you know, Americans, kind of like the TV show. They were deep cover Russian operatives who had lived here for years. Oh, I and, remember that. You know, yeah, yeah, and then there was a big spy trade, and I, I, I'm trying to remember her name. That she's now. Like a TV personality, yeah, the uh, red over, over in, in Russia, yeah. Well, see, it might as well go on television because you know Why their not? spy days are over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I'm trying to. There was an old uh, Dean Martin Matt Helm movie. I remember a famous line where they they looked at Dean Martin. Someone says, "You're the world's most famous secret agent," and <laughs> that's kind of her situation. She's kind of the world's most famous secret agent, which means that one part of her career pattern is probably over. <laughs> so. Yeah. No doubt. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few to talk about the border. Hi, this is Sherry asking you to save the dates. On August 5th, Law Matters is hosting a free double feature movie presentation on topics that affect all youth in today's digital world. Bullying, sextortion, and how your children are being sex trafficked right out of your home. Every teacher, parent, and age-appropriate student should attend. After each movie, there will be a Q&A panel made up of law enforcement and prosecutors to answer your questions. Tune in to Law Matters every Saturday morning at 8, and updates will be posted on the lawmatters1030.org website as details develop. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue, reminding you that infants and toddlers do not experience heat as adults do. Consider this when bringing your young ones on a hike in temperatures of over 80 degrees. You do not want to risk that child having heat stroke or being arrested for child endangerment. If you're thinking of a trek through nature, plan ahead, look ahead, and use your head. Your future depends on it. Save your phone's battery life so when you get lost, we may contact you. Wearing bright colors that can be seen from a distance helps the effort. 
Law Matters Live show works hard at keeping you informed on current issues from all law enforcement agencies, including any rule changes in both the tax and mortgage industries. I host the show as a volunteer. My real job is working for a mortgage broker with over 20 resources in residential, commercial, jumbo, as well as a reverse company whose new rule is offering tax-free money to those 55 and older, qualifying for up to $4 million. If you want to learn more, call me after the show at 520-310-9900. Hi, this is Sherry asking you to save the dates. On August 5th, Law Matters is hosting a free double feature movie presentation on topics that affect all youth in today's digital world. Bullying, sextortion, and how your children are being sex trafficked right out of your home. Every teacher, parent, and age-appropriate student should attend. After each movie, there will be a Q&A panel made up of law enforcement and prosecutors to answer your questions. Tune in to Law Matters every Saturday morning at 8, and updates will be posted on the lawmatters1030.org website as details develop. Okay, thanks for staying with us. We have Hal Kemper on. He's the CEO of GRIP, and we've been talking about national security issues, actually some of the things that are happening right here. I want to talk about the border. I heard that they took the balloons down and they're not going to replace them. Have you heard that? Well, they are taking, yes, I have. And uh, there's been a program of reducing the number of aerostats. The, that's the uh, that's the fancy term for the for the Balloon. balloons, the blimps, <laughs> if you will. Um, that, that program has been around for a long time. Aerostats uh, really came into vogue in the '80s, and and if you really want to go back, it goes back to literally, uh, I think World War One. They were using aerostats to as a way to intercept aircraft, uh, and World War Two to intercept aircraft flying over over Britain and elsewhere. It's, yeah, you know, the thing is you can raise them up, they're lighter than air, and they stay there. And you don't have to use any energy, if you will, any fuel or whatever to keep them up because, well, it's just basic lighter than air physics um, maintains them in the, in, you know, at, a, at an altitude. And with that, you can put things on them, cameras, uh, infrared sensors, all sorts of different sensor systems that you can use to maintain a, a, a certain visibility over an area. Things that allow you to see in periods of darkness or, 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 or when, uh, you know, it could be fog or whatever. There's a lot of different things you can do with an aerostat. Of course, the vulnerability of an aerostat generally is if the weather's bad, if the winds are honking, if you will, uh, usually it's a bad time to fly an aerostat. It's a bad time to fly, period. But aerostats, particularly because they're so big, they have this big cross-section for the wind, so it becomes very difficult to control them, and so they, they like to take them down. Now, with that said, it's been around for a very long time. You know, they're putting them up in the 80s. You know, I've done training down at Port Huachuca, you know, down around Sierra Vista on the border, you know, big aerostat down there. Uh, I've been overseas where we were, you know, in Iraq, where we had a, a, a smaller aerostat-type program that, that was being used, and it's it's been around for a while. I know it was used down in Central America uh, for some for some stuff back in the 80s, and it's okay. One of the problems with some aerostats, depending on how, how high you fly them, is they tend to get shot a lot, believe it or not. <laughs> Who would think that would happen? And, Go uh, figure. <laughs> so there's a con- constant maintenance issue with those things. There's a constant maintenance issue with those things across the board. They, the ones we have uh, are, are less advanced, if you will, than some of the more modern models. And the other thing, too, is that the technology 
is so much smaller. You know, what they originally would put on these things, they really needed something big because they were so heavy. Now they can put that technology in a, in a fairly compact arrangement, and hence the proliferation of drones. That when, when we put the aerostats up, we didn't have all these drones like Predators and Reapers and, and even Global Hawks and all these other amazing drone systems or these smaller drones you know, ones that you can literally launch by throwing it off your arm like a like a dragonfly or something like that. We didn't have these we didn't have these uh, amazing drone systems that we have now. So with that said, um, drones for overhead surveillance, regardless of whatever sensor package is on them, have have in many ways picked up uh, a lot of the uh, intelligence collection load that we would do with aerostats. And they do it more covertly. You know, when, you're the, when there's an aerostat up in the sky, everybody sees the aerostat. They know it's there. And uh, when there's a little drone up there flying at 10,000 feet or something, uh, they may or may not notice it's there. And in most cases, the drone can covertly uh, monitor, surveil, if you will, whatever's going on, on the ground without the bad guys knowing it's there. So there's a certain advantage with that. Of course, one thing you can do with an aerostat is you can also use them for deception operations. Um, this goes way, way back. But, you know, <laughs> one of the things we always realized was that, and I should mention in the 90s, um, I was very much involved with the war on drugs uh, with a joint task force. Uh, for years, it was the joint task force that was responsible for all military operations along the southwest border. And, uh, and so there was a lot of things that could be done. And, of course, if you put the aerostat up, and the drug traffickers or the smugglers say, oh, the aerostat's up, they might move to a different location. Well, you know, after a while you go, hmm, that's interesting. And so you might put the aerostat up and you might do a little bit of analysis and figure out, okay, they're probably going to come over here where they think we can't see them. And so they would, and and that was that. You know, you'd have some, some, you'd have some people there to greet them, to make sure they felt welcome when they came into the United States, and then to, you know, provide them all those things that, that, that the United States government can't provide people who are trying to smuggle things into the United States. So uh, uh, so that's, that, that's an advantage with using an aerostat. That's an advantage with doing anything that's overt, um, you know, an overt collection. I'm going to be, I'll just say aerostats are not a covert collection asset. <laughs> They're pretty overt. Uh, but that's one of the things you can use those for. So not the only overt collection asset we use, um, and, but there is a little bit of tactical or operational deception that we can use with these things as well. When so, I went down yeah, to the border, uh, Sheriff, Sheriff Mark Daniels and his, his deputies have a huge area of the border, and they took me mm-hmm. down to an area, and one of the deputies showed me, he just pointed up to the top of this hill, not really a mountain mountain but a hill and he said do you see these people on top of that hill they're on our side of the border and they're watching to make sure that you know if their people are coming across and we're over here they're telling their people to go over there so they don't be they can't be intercepted you know they kind of monitor what's going on and i'm like well get them off the hill <laughs> you know he said you know you you're sitting here with um um company or a department issue weapon they're up there with ar-15s 
you know, that's a, that's a big challenge. And, uh, and, and all the cartels, you know, that's one of the things with the, with the cartels is that uh, they have a lot of money, and a phenomenal amount of money. Now, if you're in Mexico uh, and you get into this whole discussion, they say, well, yeah, we wouldn't have a lot of money if it wasn't for all these, you know, United States citizens that are buying the dope that we are, are smuggling. Right. And so there's always that discussion that goes back and forth. But uh, with that, they have a lot of money, and, and they they have been able to, you know, way back when, they can buy a lot of talent. I know there were concerns that at the end of the Cold War, they were buying talent from, you know, the Warsaw Pact and Soviet, well, particularly the Soviet Union. They were, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, hardworking commies that were out of a job, so to speak. Um, and uh, so they had skills and they were useful to the cartels uh, with those tactical skills that they had accrued over the years. And then, of course, there's other places, you know, when we had the, big fight against, you know, the communists down in uh, El Salvador. Well, the Civil War is over. You got a lot of people down there with a lot of tactical skills that suddenly were out of a job. So they're looking for places to work. So So now they're sitting on a mountain in Cochise County. Well, it's not quite that direct, but yeah, I mean, things have changed over time. And, uh, you know, if you go go to, uh, you know, into like Los Zetas, uh, which uh, was basically came from an airborne battalion uh, that basically was hired by the Gulf Cartel as an enforcer site, but they had a lot of tactical skills. And, and with that, we've seen a proliferation of those military or paramilitary skill sets throughout the cartels in terms of what they do. Now, I have to tell you, if I was putting a signaled intelligence hat on and I see somebody on our side of the border uh, as a lookout, you know, uh, observation post or something like that, and he's on our side of the border, I would come up with some creative ways to, I would consider that reasonable su- suspicion, maybe probable cause to figure out some way to intercept whatever communications they're using back and forth. And with that, I might be able to put together that that guy is talking to drug traffickers or human traffickers on the other side of the border, which could potentially put together a case to prosecute that person that's sitting up on top of the hill. Now, the issue is how do you get up there and enforce that? That's a big challenge. You know, getting up there and enforcing is a big challenge. You know, that's a, that's a manpower intensive sort of thing. Should the uh, county sheriff have drones? I think, uh, honestly, all departments and, and the, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I am. Every, all departments. Different drones, you know, for different um, jurisdictions depends on what you need. You know, the, the, the county sheriff doesn't need Global Hawk flying at 80,000 feet, you know, looking at half the half the southern border. But there are certain drones. It's a man. It's, it saves on. It's, it's cost effective. It's, it's less manpower intensive. Putting a, a manned aircraft up usually costs a lot of money and there's limitations you know years back for example one of the one of the great tools i actually flew with these guys uh was with the civil air patrol and they had they had a thing under the uh counter drug funding that went to civil air patrol so i actually i actually caught hops with these guys to go to various interagency civil military multi-jurisdictional meetings if you will there's enough ac- there's enough specialized terms uh, in that area. But uh, 
But they would fly, and I'd talk to them. You know, you can have a lot of time with a pilot. A lot of times you're going to a Cessna or something, and you just have time to talk. And they were they were flying, um, you know, racetracks up around the border uh, because they were so cost-effective. A Cessna is, you know, that's, you know, they, they really didn't have to pay the pilot. The pilots were glad for the flight time. So they pay for the fuel for the plane to fly, and they would fly around the border looking for things. That's good, but, you know, your, your sensor system is the, as we say, the Mark 1A1 eyeballs of the pilot, who's also flying the plane at the same time. So they're somewhat of a limited collector in that regard. Now, some of these planes with uh, light planes are okay, and they use those very extensively for aerial surveillance. But actually, drones, at this point of the game, with the technology where it's at, the affordability, the ability to use drones, I'm a big believer in that. And among other things, I would say that a part of the kit bag that uh, that 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 officers should have with them are are tactical drones that they can use for close-in surveillance for for anything. That could be you know if you have someone barricading the house, you could launch a drone and 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 do a, basically a, a reconnaissance around the house. Yeah, I think some agencies have that. Yeah, some agencies yeah. already yeah. have that. But I'm thinking, well, you know, if you've got people coming over the border and you had a, a drone following them, like you and I were talking about yesterday, you could follow them across the country to find out where they go and what are they doing. Well, that was what we were talking about on that was uh, I did a lot of work with customs, uh, U.S. customs. And there is what we call the customs domain. All right. And when someone comes into the country, and this is usually more focused on products, but it, but working with immigration, it also works on, on people as well, just as easily. But when they come into the country, if you can pick them up coming into the country, uh, you can follow them wherever they go. So, for example, if a, uh, if a load comes up, you know, a container comes up to the border and crosses the border under U.S. law, they could watch that container until it gets delivered in Topeka, Kansas. And and in a warehouse, they could literally go into the warehouse and say, okay, we want to search that container. And, of course, the warehouse will say, where's your warrant or everything? It's like, no, you brought in something that came across the customs domain. You have to open that up. Now, anything else they see is in plain view. But that's under U.S. law that can happen. And they can also track these individuals. And that, you know, in all fairness, you know, sometimes you you don't necessarily want to intercept them at the border. You'd like to see where they end up. Right. You know, you may want to, you know, if it's narcotics, you may want to follow that load until it gets up into Los Angeles to wherever it's going to go. And then once it goes in there, once it goes someplace, then you do the enforcement action. And you're going to you know, gather a lot more investigative leads, if you will from that, along with arresting a lot of people and various other things. And, of course, from a federal standpoint, if the, fed, you know, the, the U.S. border is a federal jurisdiction, from a federal standpoint, if they, if they do that, they can also share some of the, some of the accolades with uh, local law enforcement to get involved. In. And multi-jurisdictional you know, credit sharing is a pretty good idea. So that's, uh, there's a lot of advantages of doing it that way, as opposed to just taking the load down at the border. So, so we need we need to get you know, drones for our law enforcement agencies. I firmly believe that. In fact, I think uh, I'm not saying that every every uh, 
every patrol car should have a drone. I think that's very possible if you look at these little tiny handheld drones that we've been using uh, overseas uh, in the military. Those are available. Those provide, it's not a huge drone, but you can literally launch it out of the palm of your hand. And you can imagine the number of tactical situations or operational situations where just being able to put up a little drone that could fly around the corner or around a building or, or around cars or something like that would provide tremendous information for the officers involved in a, in a, in a situation. But also uh, for, for other situations like along the border, larger drones that may have uh, more persistent loiter time that can fly over, uh, you know, I've done a lot of stuff in the field. I've done a lot, you know, a lot of stuff in very tactical situations. And frankly, the ability to look on what's on the other side of the hill or around the, you know, what's on the other side of those bushes or, or whatever is an incredible, incredible advantage when you're doing something out there. You know, it's a, you know, beyond catching bad guys, it's also avoiding walking into an ambush or something like that. So there's a lot of value in having these drones. Yeah, keep our and law enforcement guys safe. That's the idea. Yeah. Yes, very much so. So. I want to I want to get on to Russia because I I heard that you know they've got some missing generals and they're swearing no <laughs> windows were open so they're not sure what happened so yeah there's an amber alert out for them right now they're trying to find <laughs> these missing generals <laughs> so what's going on not over sure there what happened you know they they you know um, well uh, there was uh, well more than missing generals. Uh, they're, uh, very interesting. In Russia, there was a, uh, uh, a, a Navy captain who was uh, commander of a submarine that last year had fired a number of missiles into uh, uh, a, a city in Ukraine that killed uh, about 22, 27 civilians. Well, they were able to figure out which submarine fired those missiles. And he was out for a run this last week. And... They they were they think they were tracking him on kind of a Russian version of a Fitbit type thing, you know, where you where you do right. stuff. And they intercepted him and 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 killed him. Uh, no one's quite sure who did it. They think could have been Ukrainian special operations, could have been Ukrainian intelligence, could have been anti-Putin Russians. It's not quite clear. But it was rather amazing. But this guy was back home. He's a naval officer. He's just out for like a, a noontime run. And and they were able to intercept him and take him down. And that's got to cause some angst. You may have seen where the commander, uh, Major General uh, Popov, who was the commander of the 58th Combined Arms Army. That's a large organization. That's the equivalent of one of our corps, if you will. It's above a division. Very large organization. Very critical organization in terms of the Ukrainian uh, military operations uh, for the Russians. He's, he was relieved, and there's an audio tape that's out there where he's talking about why he was fired. And the reason he was fired, which sounds a lot like Prigozhin, you know, the head of, uh, of the Wagner group that did the rebellion right. uh, some weeks back, was he was criticizing the Ministry of Defense for not providing the support that his forces needed, you know, not providing the ammunition, not providing what's called counter battery fire, which means when they're taking uh, artillery fire or rocket fire from the uh, Ukrainians, that he didn't have the means to return fire to take out those 
artillery or rocket units, which is great for the Ukrainians. I mean, that's, uh, that's you know, if they lack that capability, the Ukrainians are, you know, if you're out there, you're pretty happy if you're a Ukrainian artilleryman. But uh, he was complaining about that. He was, he was basically complaining across the board, apparently, but very vocal about it. They relieved him. They fired him and replaced him. And that audio tape is getting shared. It was on Telegram, from my understanding, which is kind of their big social media thing. And the fact that you have that falling on the hill, that kind of criticism, not just the rebellion of the Wagner group trying to go up to Moscow, but, but it was right before that action where he uh, went down to Rostov and basically walked into the Southern Region Military Headquarters and had to sit down chat with the commander and the senior intelligence officer there that was all over the news, and then his force went. Before that, he was, ex- Prigozhin was extremely vocal and, and basically said that the entire war was based on a lie. And that's well, it is. similar to what, it, well, it is. And Popov was kind of saying the same thing. Uh, and so he was fired. And, and these things kind of seep into the Russian consciousness, uh, particularly with the intelligentsia that, that you know, the uh, I should say the more, you know, urban elites, if you will, those that, that, that have the means to gather that information more effectively than, say, so, someone who's in rural Russia, you know, somewhere in the middle of the country, Moscovites, St. Petersburg residents, others that can get into this information flow. They're seeing this and they're reading this stuff and they're really having some deep questions uh, raise their minds. And then there was a lieutenant general who was killed. He was, he went to, he'd been shot earlier in the war, survived. And he was um, basically at a headquarters building that was, I guess, pretty well known. And and the assessment was that the Ukrainians, the Russians kind of knew that the Ukrainians knew about this headquarters building. And, uh, you know, little kudos to Ukrainian intelligence. When he was in there at a particular time, they managed to target that building and, uh, and killed him. And he's the highest-ranking Russian general that they've taken out. And then, of course, up in Moscow, you know, you have a number of generals who disappeared right about the time of the rebellion, uh, to include a four-star uh, general who at one time was head of all military operations in Ukraine. And so when you look at this, you know, there's been a, a kind of a purge, if you will, of general officers, which kind of raises a lot of questions of how much hate and discontent, how much frustration is there in the Russian military across the board. And even though he can keep purging them, it's not the same. And, and Putin loves Stalin, and Stalin was pretty famous for purges. Of course, Stalin almost lost the Soviet Union at the beginning of World War II because he purged most of his generals and senior military officers because he thought they might be a political threat to him. So he just he took Got them rid off, of, them. of course, then... Well, then, ironically, some of the great heroes of the Soviet Union in World War II were officers that they had to pull out of Stalin's and then put back in service. And it's like, okay, you were an enemy. Okay, you're now our friend, and we're going to put you back in charge of a bunch of troops because he realized that he needed um, uh, military officers who actually knew what they were doing. And uh, so... uh, Where do you find them? You can't go to Craigslist or, you know, the... I hire place to get those. We only have a couple of minutes left. I want to talk about China antagonizing our military and doing what they're doing. What's up with that? Well, they're you know part of this. Um, 
um, I, I don't want to doll this up, but uh, uh, part of the Barbie comp controversy ties to this <laughs> is China has uh, this thing that they've maintained forever called the nine-line nine claim uh, across the South China Sea. And it really is basically they're claiming the South China Sea is Chinese waters. Now, obviously, the waters that they're claiming belong to other countries like the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam. None of those countries are too thrilled about that. And that's why you see Vietnam ban the Barbie movie. Philippines is looking at banning the Barbie movie was because somewhere in, in whoever, you know, the producers of the Barbie movie, they decided to show a map of China's, China's claim of the nine dash line. I don't know how that was a, a critical plot instrument in whatever that movie is about. But uh, anyway, they had that in there, which really irritated them. The problem with this is things like the Chinese Strait. 60% of the container traffic, seagoing container traffic around the world, goes through the Straits of Taiwan. It's a phenomenal amount that goes through that area. There's a phenomenal amount of, of traffic that goes through the South China Sea. China feels that that is their lake. And obviously, the international courts, the United Nations, doesn't agree with these claims. So they go out there and they do these provocative moves. The most recent one is that our one of our two of our well Canadian ship and one of our ships are doing a, a joint patrol, what we call freedom of navigation, going through the Taiwan Straits. And and one of their, uh, I think it was a destroyer, cut right in front of. I saw that. Uh, of, of, of our ship, and there's yeah, there's, and and there's enough that the, they could feel the wake. It was enough to cause a navigation change on the U.S. ship that uh, that it had to avoid a collision, and it was very unsafe. Was what they did. There's a thing called coal rigs, which deal with uh, you know proper conduct of vessels at sea around the world that everybody abides by. And this was a flagrant violation of the coal rigs in terms of what they did. So. Uh, that's uh, that's that's a very provocative move. Of course, you may have also seen yesterday that, or last three days, that the uh, China's been flying aircraft across the uh, the median line uh, in the Taiwan Strait in order to test Taiwanese air defense. A lot of provocative moves in the air, on the sea, and also provocative moves further south in in Philippine waters. They have been constantly doing this, but they've been doing this recently, where they will they will surge uh, what they call Chinese Coast Guard vessels. By the way, a lot of these Chinese Coast Guard vessels used to be painted gray, and they were part of the Chinese Navy. And so years back, as a as a sort of a, uh, a deception or strategic communications thing, thirty seconds they pulled them back in a port, painted them white, and said they're Coast Guard because everybody likes the Coast Guard. Everybody likes and, the Coast Guard. Uh, yeah, and then they put them right back at sea, doing the same thing they were doing as part of the Chinese Navy. But that's another issue. So, Do you think they're yeah. trying to provoke war? I, I think they're trying to, I think what they're trying, uh, yes. At some point, maybe, I think they're trying, They would. They would. if there's a war, they would prefer that, that somebody else shoots first so they can call it a defensive war. Uh, I, I think that's a kind of a, uh, really almost a moot point once you go to war, but they would like to do that. But the other thing is they're they're trying to what they can't do through legal means in the international courts and certainly working through the United Nations, they're trying to do through brute force de facto means, which is we're just gonna put our ships down there and force everybody out of those waters.
by some of these very aggressive moves that we're making in the air and the water to try and make them stop. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and and bringing us up to date on everything. And I want you to have a good weekend. I want everybody out there to shop local and stay safe. Thanks, Hal. Thanks, Sherry.